To Rippercast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you recordings from the audio archives. This is the sixth of eight installments in chronological order, spanning the years 1995 through to 1999, and all focusing on the Maybrick Diary. The following sound recording we bring to you is Paul Feldman at the February 1998 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. And he spoke uh, powerfully and passionately about his belief in the authenticity of the Maybrick Diary and his unswerving conviction that James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. He's since uh, written a book detailing his investigation um, in which he claims that he has proved his case. Um, we'll hear from you um, about this later on, whether you agree or not. The very mention of the Maybrick Journal, the Maybrick Diary, um, arouses intense passions, emotions in people. It's been described as the worst thing that has happened to Ripper's studies. Certainly, it's the um, most... Um, controversial um, alleged Ripper-related document to have surfaced in quite a few years and had views about that as well. So here um, this evening to bravely fuel this uh, controversy, I'd ask you to please welcome Paul Berman. Yes, it's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, a colleague of mine was uh, describing the Maybrick Diary to me uh, the other day and said he described it, he actually compared it to the Titanic. Unsinkable, sunk, and now being rediscovered. Well, um, I just wondered whether there was uh, times when you felt like jumping in a lifeboat. Um, I don't think I did. I think it, I think it's intriguing now. Normally this morning's six years since this was first made public report to public. It's not dead. And what else my main thinking is well, it's not dead. Why is it not dead? There has to be a reason why it's not dead. And it's not dead. All people recently today. It was. How's your book doing? 
Um, it actually started quite slow. Um, sold out uh, on hardback, and it will be um, released on paperback in June. It's being released in hardback in the United States later. You're working on the paperback now? I'm working on the paperback. I just want to move things up and down. Um, actually, we'll come back along today. This something that I stumbled on with my Well, let's leave the photographs till later. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this has been your, your first book. Um, and I, I wondered whether um, it had altered your perceptions of a writer's life. It's damn hard work. Um, and I didn't realise how much work it was when I started. There, there, there was a difference when I was um, researching the video, the video and researching um, the that I was working with Shirley on her book as well. But it was different because I didn't have to make sure all the things tied up with Shirley's work. Um, when I had to do it myself, I realised that you can't even spend that time too much on it. Did you ever find that some of the um, theories and the ideas that you had solidly appear and discussed vociferously with colleagues um, didn't actually stand up on the written page when you actually... What I didn't realise was the politics involved in the Ripper circles. Shortly after I started, I was quite happy to uh, let people know when I did find something that, that, that was interesting, and I found it interesting whether it, it proved maybe it was relevant or not was irrelevant. Mm. I found it interesting, and people just jump on it because because that meant maybe it might be relevant. Devastated before I even started. Mm. And it was you, really, that, that said, keep it yourself. Let me explore the politics of the um, experience with you later. Um, was it an enjoyable experience, the writing of the book? Um, no, the research was. The writing was, was boring. That's because of the disciplines that well, were imposed on you? Because I knew what I had, and I knew what was in there, and I knew what I had in, on paper, but I had to put it down in words, and I, I, I can't say I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed everything that led up to it. I enjoyed all the research behind it. And as you know, I was researching whilst I was writing. So even then, it was the research that I enjoyed. It, it, it wasn't the writing of it. It frequently happens. I suppose in this room this evening, there may be uh, novice writers who are embarking on their definitive study of Jack the Ripper, what advice might you have for them, apart from don't? Um, you, you hit me on the head in one. Um, no, I, I, I just think that it, it is a tough job. I think for anybody to write a book is, is a major achievement, whether you agree with, with what they've turned up at the end or whether you don't. Um, I think that anybody that, that starts and finishes what they set out to achieve, you can only have uh, the highest regard for them. So, if anyone is writing an, an, another book on Ripper, good luck. Um, I don't envy you. I've, I've had to, in fact, I, I've rewritten, I think it's uh, an added a bit for, for the, the um, back and took a long time to get out of <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become involved in all of this? I got involved, I suppose. Um, through pure luck, 
I had approached my partner with a view to making a video on Jet the Ripper. I didn't know too much about it. Um, I knew quite little on the subject, as, as Paul Peck can tell you. Um, but I did, I did quite like the idea. Well, I don't think the, the only two documentaries I'd seen was one. I think it was Peter Euston. Mm. And I hadn't seen anything that I thought was a quality program. And so I decided that, that I'd look into it. My partner said that okay, do do some research, find out whether there is anything new or different, and if we can find an angle, um, we do it. As you know, get a lot of uh, feedback here wherever you are. I say, uh, <laughs> uh, but when we started, um, I, I favoured Dread quite strongly. What happened? <laughs> I think what we turned up, what we discovered, and, and research into the diary told me that there was no way that this could be <coughs> luck, coincidence, and the amount of luck and coincidence there was was, was, was becoming more and more ridiculous. Which, which, which books influenced you most, impressed you most? I think, uh, and, and, and this isn't a setup. But I enjoyed the Ripper Legacy, as you know, um, and I. Which book? The Ripper Legacy. The Legacy. And in fact, I, I that's how I got to know Martin Howes. Was um, I think it was way back in when was it? The 1988, 1989, something like that. Yeah. Um, I contacted Martin Howes when he when he was in England, wasn't it? Um, to, I think it was in New Zealand. To, to time, talk yeah. about acquiring the film rights because I just done the craze, or yes, I just done the craze. No, that wasn't in the uh, I didn't know that at the time. And um, so when I was working on the video with with, with Paul Bank, I was working with Paul really most of the time. I wasn't with you um, on Dread. Um, I remember what actually happened. It was quite amusing. Although it's in the book, some of you may not have read the book. Um, but firstly, I got in touch with Don Rumble, um, and I, I wonder if, it, if Don Rumble hadn't said what he said, I may mean, not have got involved at all. Um, but Don Rumble came to my house at the time, spent the day with me crucifying your book. Um, it's actually true. Uh, and just as he was leaving, he said to me, Have you heard about this diary that was found in Liverpool? I said, what diary? I mean, he said, it's supposed to be written by the, the, the Ripper. So I shrugged myself shoulders and said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what actually happened was, was Tom was honest enough to say, look, I, I did this 20 years ago and I, I'm not really keen on doing it again. He said, you should really contact the boys that wrote the A to Z. Um, they know it inside out. And, and I, you know, it's not for me anymore. I've done it, been there. And, and that was really Don's view. So he got me, I believe, your number. I left a message on your aunt's phone and got called back quite quickly. And over a period of time, I met, I think, first I met Keith with Paul. And they, I asked them whether they knew anything about the diary. And they said they had, they were aware of it. They couldn't say anything because they're under confidentiality. Um, and then, but they said that they didn't believe that, that, that what they'd seen should stop me doing what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And then I saw, I had a, um, 
a lunch with Martin Fyler, mate that day. And that was quite amusing in itself because we went to a restaurant, he had me lying on the floor and showed me how the Ripper was killing. And, um, <laughs> it's quite good fun actually, Aaron. Um, but he, he was adamant about his theory and, and, and the story meant nothing at all to him. Um, but so I carried on working with Drew. I didn't, didn't think anything more of the diary. I believe it must have been around about August 92. And then a few weeks later, Paul Begg phoned me up out of the blue and he said, I have to say, and I've spoken, he'd spoken to Keith, he'd spoken to Marty, that irrespective of what they believed, they couldn't shape the diary historically. And it would be unfair of me to continue to make the video without at least um, having mentioning the diary in the video. I, I, I couldn't just ignore it and pretend it wasn't there. They run, and, and, and that shook me because there were three guys here that, that know this thing inside out, back to front and upside down. And whatever I learned over the years that I investigated it, at the time, they knew it. And there were three people here that, irrespective of their views, could not shape the diary historically. And that was important. Looking around this room, um, I should say what a pleasure it is to see Shirley Harrison and Martin Fido. And Martin? Martin is here. Martin? Yeah. 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 There he is. Yeah. Waiting to stab you in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Parler. And he says through gritted teeth, Don Rumbelo <laughs> and Molly. Um, but looking around this room, Paul, there will be many people who are asking themselves, um, why has Paul Fellman spent the last five and a half years um, invested over £150,000 investigating what to them is obviously a modern forgery, um, unquestionably an amateur fake, and clearly a pile of horse manure. I mean, how do you respond to that? Um, I respond by asking. I mean, yeah, go on. I respond by asking people to actually think. Um, it, 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 I don't know how many of you have followed the internet since my book came out. Um, it has had more attention than any other book on the subject ever. I think mean, it was over 150 pages of debate from all over the world. And the fact is this that at the moment not one piece of material historical evidence disproves that that diary was written by James Maybrick and that James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. And the extraordinary amounts of coincidences that have arisen, which which I don't know when you want to go through these, and I will, um, it, it is a little bit too much and we have to start saying to ourselves, that is beyond the ability of a forger. If the die was forged, we know who the forger is. It's not a secret anymore. The forger has to be Anne Graham. Or Mike Barrett. Or both. Um, Richard Whittington Egan, Martin Fido, Melvin Harris, Phil Sugden, Stuart Evans. To a man, they say this diary is a modern forgery. Not only that, they agree with Melvin Harris when he writes, and I've got the quote here to get it accurate. Um, 
its time-wasting stupidities will li linger on to dog historians for years to come. Um, these are... That's a strange, that, that, well, that's a very strange comment, because either we have to... If, if this diary was a modern folk, then... Well, let, we, me, uh, let, me, we, ask, let, me, let me ask the audience, Paul. We've got them here. Um, how, how many of you actually agree with the experts that the diary actually is uh, just a, 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 a tiresome distraction? Anymore? Well, well, well. They're gradually putting their hands up. Yep. There's a firm table there and we'll get questions from them over there, um, no doubt. Well, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, and it, it looks like people really think um, it's not nearly, I think, the sort of arm-raising level that you would have expected. I uh, had, uh, I can, no can, I, can I please say that, that you said who agrees with the experts? Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to add that you are an expert. I believe that Paul Beck is most certainly an expert. Well, I'm keeping us out of this. I know you may be, I'm not. Um, <laughs> and Paul Beck and Keith Skinner do not believe that this is a modern forgery. Well, that's your henchman, Paul. What do you expect? <laughs> well, if we, let's not quote Mr. Harris. It's not fair. He's not here. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll notice, actually, from that list that I left John Rumbelow's name off it. Now, this wasn't an oversight, although arguably Don is a very unmemorable person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Don actually, uh, I mean, it, it is smashing that he's here tonight, and he has said to me quite honestly that he does not know whether this diary is genuine or modern. He feels that much more attention should be focused actually on the physical object itself. He feels that there are more clues that it will reveal, um, and that in fact is what Don has been doing over the past couple of weeks. Um, he has closely examined the diary and as a result of this close examination he's already um, established or it's been established that in fact there are not 48 uh, missing pages but there are I think 62. Now that's a tiny tiny detail could be insignificant could mean nothing. What it does uh, mean though, or what it could mean is that it could actually undermine the whole investigation. Why has it taken five and a half years to discover that there are 62 missing pages and not 48? How much of your investigation was actually centered on the diary and how much was it to do with the scientific and the forensic evidence? Well, the, the scientific and forensic evidence um, was, was basically set down at the time I got involved, as you know, um, the, the scientific evidence had been done by Rendon in the States as well as various people here. Um, and I had to go by the information that we had. It was, I, I, I actually had a lot of sympathy for, for Robert Smith. That's the publisher. The publisher <laughs> at the time, because everyone wanted to handle this document, touch this document, um, and play with this document. And yet, with hindsight, no one should have been allowed to touch it. No one should have been allowed to handle it. Um, people had been to McDonald's, they had grease all over their hands, they touched these pages, they turned these pages, and that, it, you're going to pick that up at some point. 
Now, um, without going into into the detail, the minute amount of, of chloroacetamide that was found at, at one point in the diary, and then it, it, it was absolutely minute. Couldn't have been from the ink because there's no ink that contains that amount of chloroacetamide. So it must have come from something else where someone's touched it. Who knows what people do? I, I handle it maybe three times. I smoke heavily. I drink a fair bit. Um, and, and, and my hands are, you know, you're touching chemicals all day long. Any, any science, good scientific equipment is going to pick up whatever's in my fingernails, whatever's in Shirley Harrison's fingernails, whatever is in Robert Smith's fingernails, it's going to be picked up. That document should never have been handled until it was preserved. It has been now, and we're going to have to live with that. You've, you've actually preempted a question which I was going to ask you, um, and that is to do with Jack the Ripper now. Is, is, is a, it's, it's a multi-million dollar industry. We've already had a, a major film uh, a Ripper film announced in America, which has been given the green light to go. Um, you've, and I, I will come back to, 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 to what you've touched on, which is interesting, which I want to explore with you, but you've actually frequently said that Ripper experts, Ripper authorities, are scared of this diary. Uh, I, I, can I, you expand? Yes, I can. I do believe they're scared of it because they can't answer it. Um, if the if one of the quotes there you just said was this is going to do, to dog ripper authorities for years to come, why? If it's a fake, why can't we prove it? What is the problem? Now, are we saying? And I don't know how many of you in this room met Anne Graham when she came to me for uh, came with me for the first talk that I gave at this place, or have seen my Barrett. Um, and maybe after this is finished, you can actually ask Paul and Keith about their experiences of Mike Barrett and Shirley Harrison and Robert Smith. Are we saying that Mike Barrett and Anne Graham know more about the whole of the Ripper world than Martin Fyder, than Melvin Harris, than all these people put together? Because these people have to accept, these experts have to accept that if it's a forgery, then these people have beaten them because they haven't been able to prove how, when, and who forged it. Why not if it's a forgery? If it's a, 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 an easy forgery, as it's been called, as it's a piece of rubbish, as it's been called, why can't these experts find out how Mike Barrett and Anne Graham fabricate it? And I suppose it's just coincidence that when Florence Baybrick left prison, she used the name Maybrick, uh, for Graham Maybrick. That's just coincidence. It's just coincidence that her son is a spitting image of her. That's just coincidence. But I'm sure Anne Graham must have somehow figured that that was going to happen and found a picture of somebody that looked like Florence and said it was grandfather. It's all too much for me. You've introduced Anne Graham into the uh, into the story. Um, the and, and that touches very much on the question of provenance. The question of provenance has always been a sticking point with this uh, uh, with this document. Wolf Gregg in a recent Ripperologist article said that he finds the 
diary to be a fascinating document, but he's dogged by this question of provenance. Now, right, right, right from the beginning, Mike Barrett insisted, he swore upon Bible after Bible, that he received this document from Tony Devereaux. Devereaux, unfortunately, was dead. He could not be questioned. Um, many people here um, won't know how this document actually got into Tony Devereaux's hands. They don't know the Anne Graham story. Can you enlighten me? I felt for quite some time, I think it was I think it was from the very first time that I went to meet Mike Barrett and Anne Graham with Paul Begg and Martin House. I know that Paul Begg will tell you that, that I focused on Anne Graham quite early on. It was a look in her eye, it was the way that she was looking at Mike Barrett answering the questions. But I felt that, that she knew more than she was saying. Keith can tell you that that was a view shared by Scotland Yard. And I did a search on Anne Barrett. I actually got part of the investigation on Anne Barrett. I didn't publish it in the book, but I was in the paperback. And Martin Fido saw it at the time. I believe, probably, sure you did. Paul did, Keith did, and it said, it gave the background to Anne, and it said that her maiden identity had been destroyed, and that only the government had the power to destroy that identity. Um, what else did it say, Keith? I can't remember. Um, well, that's the essence of it. That was the essence of it, basically, that, that, that her maiden identity had been destroyed. Not her maiden name, because her maiden name hadn't been destroyed. But her maiden identity had been destroyed. And before I tell you how I got to Anne Graham, later on, Anne, Anne actually checked it out by finding that all her medical records had been destroyed, nothing existed about her past whatsoever. She actually tried to get them from the doctor and couldn't. Now, I, I, I didn't believe that Anne did not have a criminal record. There was no, nothing in the documents I had that showed that she had anything of a criminal record whatsoever. Michael Barrett did, but she didn't. And I, um, I, I dug into their backgrounds, but it all came to dead ends, and, and the certificates seemed to show that her, her, her grandfather was born in, in um, Hardable and that his, his parents were, on, on paper, they, they were um, Adam Graham Nallis Spence, I believe, and that he was born in 1879. So hold that for a moment. What eventually happened is that Mike Barrett and Anne Graham separated and divorced. And I was pushing Mike Barrett. By this time, Mike Barrett was a bit of a mess. He sat in a chair. It was, quite, it was very sad. It was very sad. I had seen him in a family environment with his child. He adored his wife. He adored that. And he adored his daughter. There's no question about it. He had become an alcoholic. His, and Anne lost 
her respect for him and eventually left him. And no one knew where Ant was, not Robert Smith, not I. No one could find any. I think it was Robert that actually tracked it out. Um, but I dropped a note through a letterbox when I was up in Liverpool one weekend and I didn't get a response. Eventually I went to see Michael Barrett. And I was there one day and there was this, this creature, it was just sitting in an armchair. There were two bottles of whiskey empty by the side of him. He was wet. Um, and he, he was a mess. And I was with Robbie Johnson, who was Albert Johnson's brother, and Cal Willis. And we, Robbie went to see if there was a, because I was pushing, where did this thing come from? Somebody's telling a lie. Someone's telling a lie, someone knows more than they're telling. You didn't believe it had come from Devereux? No, I didn't believe it had come from Devereux. Um, I, I, I didn't discount Devereux. I didn't really believe that Devereux was the source of it. Mm. Um, I can't say we didn't investigate it, because as you know, we did. And we went through Devereux's family lines, then we found out he, uh, someone in the family was a funeral director, and we wondered whether his family buried Maybrick, and the guy was there, and then out of the So we went down all those routes. And to fast forward it, what, what it transpired is that, in fact, Anne Graham had actually given the diary to Tony Devereux. Uh, yeah, let me tell you, because it's emotional. The reason why she gave it to Tony Devereux is the marriage between her and my Barrett had finished. And there was no respect. Anne was earning the money. She was out there. She was a PA for a, a stockbroker. And she's a bright lady. I came to know her very, very well. Still know her very well. She's a very bright, intelligent woman. No question about it. And she lost respect for Mike. Mike hadn't worked for years. He sat at home. His only job was to pick up his daughter from school to take her home. But his daughter ended up taking him home because he waited in the pub with Tony Devereux until she came out of school. So Anne's last throw of the dice was to give this diary to Mike. Maybe he can make something of it. Maybe he he want, she wanted him to write a novel about it. He'd been in the family for years. She knew that. She'd seen it in 1968. That was the last row of the dice. Why didn't she give it to Mike direct? Because, like many women in this room, I'm sure would understand, they had held the purse strings for many, many years. Um, uh, Anne had held the purse strings for many years. If Mike did make something of himself, she didn't want him to know she was the source of his success. Um, I think that's very reasonable and rational to me. Why did Mike confess to forging the diary? Um, <laughs> Mike confessed to forging the diary because he wanted to hurt Anne. And it's as simple as that. He knew, Mike knew the diary came from Anne. As long as he was with her, he didn't say a word because, and I do not dispute this possibility for a moment, it is absolutely possible that Mike Barrett believed and forged it. Absolutely conceivable. But in his heart, that's what Mike thought. So Mike wanted to protect his wife, protect his child, and he he took it all on himself. Now I believe there's, there's two possibilities the day he, he phoned that, what's his name, um, Harold Rath. So I've got something to tell you. 
He said he wrote the diary. Two possibilities. One, he wanted to hurt Anne because he wanted, he knew the diary was real and wanted to diminish it to hurt Anne by saying he forced it. I happen to believe, having got to know the people as well as I possibly could, that that was Mike's last attempt to get Anne back. He was desperate to get Anne back. Still is, still is, after all these years. Still is. And that was his way of saying to his wife, you forged it, but I'll take the flag. I'll say I forged it. And that was why he told the local press. He forged it. it was, he was opening up to Anne. That was the only way he could talk to Anne and say, I'll take the flag for you. I'll go down for you. I love you that much. That was that relationship. And and only only Keith, possibly Paul, surely can tell you that in terms of the the, the way Mike was with Anne, he's absolutely right. He was he's still besotted by her, and still hurts her one minute and is mad in love with the next. So I believe that's what Mike was trying to do. At that point, I think he had come to the conclusion that Anne must have forged a diary. Now I say by then, because when Anne and Mike broke up, I used to get calls from Mike in the middle of the night. He wouldn't talk to me about the diary when they were together, but then he'd start phoning me up. And he'd, <coughs> I thought he was giving me clues to find out the truth, because his name was on the book, and that way I'll find out the truth. And, and, and the amount of dead ends we went down, he was bright enough, Mike, to pick up the the solicitors who represented him, one of the partners' names, George R. Davidson, who was Maybrick's best friend, total red Harry. But he said to me, you will know that, I think these were the words, Keith, more or less, you got the tape on over. It was something like, when you know the name of my solicitors, then you will know the truth. I understand, Paul, the cat and mouse game that was being played between you and, and, and Mike, but I bring this back to Anne, Graham, because she is crucial Sorry. to to to, uh, to this story. What? Let me just ask you though, um, or let me just make the observation or explore the observation with you that Anne, I mean, you, you've told the story of Anne and her relationship with Mike uh, over eighteen years, married for eighteen years. Um, the trouble is that, and you could, I could feel it even as you were telling me the story. Many people in this room simply do not believe Anne Graham. They say she has deceived uh, her husband, she misled a police investigation by saying absolutely nothing, she lied to the press. Why then is she not lying and deceiving us now? The lady is discredited, her testimony is worthless. That is the resistance that uh, you meet. How do you overcome this? I think I think I am pretty best of all. If I've lied to my husband by giving him the diary in the way that I've given it to him, she didn't lie to him, she just didn't tell him. She deceived him. She deceived him. She deceived him for his benefit, not for hers. Because if it was to her benefit, she did have the diary. She way around with the I don't think there's one person in the room that disputes the fact that this diary emanated from Anne Graham. Whether she wrote it, whether she gave it to Mike, it came from Anne Graham. 
Now, she wanted Mike to do something with his life, so she gave it to a friend to give to him, and, and she did it because she wanted her husband never to be beholden to her should he be a success, should things work out. She was brought up as a Catholic, she didn't want to be divorced, she didn't want, it, it, it wasn't something she wanted to do, she did everything she could to hold the family together for many, many years before they broke up. That was the last round of advice. How important was it to you to establish your <coughs> provenance to securing a lucrative film deal? It, it didn't, didn't make any difference at all, and that, that, is, that is one of the, the laughable criticisms that have come out. The film deal was done on the basis of Shirley Harrison's book, and there was actually a rider in there whether it be fiction or otherwise. And the reason was, was that, and Robert Smith can tell you this, they wanted to, at the beginning, they wanted a, um, they wanted a comeback clause should it be proved to be a fake. <laughs> now, any of you that know me know I don't sign clauses like that, not when we've got Melvin Harris's around, they're saying, well, that proves it's a fake, and it doesn't prove it's a fake. None of you would be here today, we wouldn't be debating it if it had been proved to be a fake. So, when you're dealing with big film companies in the United States of America, I've just done another deal with CBS on, on, on something else. You do not give them an out if someone says it's a fake, because this expert says it's a fake, let's make it fake. So, it made no difference to me, and I believe the film bill was done before I established the problem. It's always actually struck me as, as, as being very curious that a film deal could actually rest on the testimony of a lady in Liverpool who says, yes, it's been in my uh, family for a long time, and the film company actually says, yes, okay, well, that's fine for us, that's the provenance. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right, yep, yep, that yep, isn't what happened. Yep, people, people are suspicious, though, Paul, because here, here you are with all this, all this money behind you. You go up to Liverpool, desperate for a provenance, so they think. Uh, you meet Anne Graham, and suddenly you've got a provenance. We find that the diary has actually been in Anne Graham's family for over 30 years. Not only that, we find that Anne's grandfather is possibly the illegitimate uh, child of Florence um, Maybrick. Right. For Keith, you are well aware, so is Paul, in the early days, I was absolutely convinced. Uh, they have a right to be, they have a right to be and, suspicious. And you know, I'm not, I'm not saying they don't. And are. Anyone here that's watched my video knows that I actually believe... But the video was prior to... I'm aware to, to of that. I'm aware of that. Hang on a minute. <laughs> that the diary had come out of Battle Creek's house at the time the electricians were working there. So much so, I followed up every damn electrician. I spoke to them. Uh, my, my belief was so strong, I did put it in the video. Now, and Paul Dog told me that he didn't want to fight Mike Barrett in court. That's the owner of Battle Creek's house. That's the owner of Battle Creek's house to try and get the diary back. But he would accept 10% from Mike Barrett if this had been stolen and Mike knew it had been stolen from there, which was very feasible considering this was all done in a pub, which is what we were led to believe at the time. And Mike Barrett was told that. 
but Paul Dodd would do a deal with you, Tencent. There was an electrician that told myself, Martin Howes, when he was with me, he would accept, he claimed he stole the diary. And that he would say so, and then he started asking for money, so I didn't like it. I had a phone call from a man who I'm quite happy to name. And I was surprised that I got the phone call from a man called Tim Martin Wright. That's Martin Wright with a hyphen. He's quite a prestigious businessman. I haven't quite got to the bottom of this yet. But this conversation is taped and it's transcribed. And Tim Martin Wright told me to lay off my investigation. Not, by the way, I might add the Van Graham, but the term of Albert Johnson. Albert and Johnson I, is the owner of the, the watch. Owner, the owner of the Maybrook watch. And I was told to lay off it and that he could give me provenance if that's what I wanted because he could swear he was offered the diary for money from an electrician. And he gave me this whole conversation, the whole conversation was state. But he made one terrible mistake. He told me that when he was offered the diary for money by a man, and this man apparently came back afterwards and said, sorry Mr. Martin White, but I sold it to Tony Devereux. And I asked him three times, and it's in the transcript, when did it happen? And unfortunately for this gentleman, for whatever his reason that was to phone me, and after Tony Devereux was dead. So I didn't take any notice of it. Provenance could be created by Anne Graham in a way that didn't involve anybody, anything, if that was her purpose to forge a diary and create provenance. She knew about Battlecrease House after I found out the electricians. Even if um, she didn't know about it before, I found out. I told her Paul Dodd would take 10% of whatever they get and there won't be any court case, there'd be an agreement. And you know, I found out later that Anne told Mike to take 10%. What about the belief Now that wait, this is important because this is what put me onto the fact that I knew that Mike Harrick knew it wasn't the fake. I when I told Mike this, that there's an electrician that, that said he stole it, I gave him the man's address. Mike Barrett went round there, knocked on the man's door, and said, how dare you say you need to? I know you didn't. Now, that told me Mike Barrett knew it was genuine. Because Mike Barrett wouldn't have knocked on the door. He wouldn't have threatened the man and told him he didn't nick it, because he couldn't have possibly known unless he knew the provenance of the diary. And yet he's a complex character, Mike Barrett, because we've got Mike Barrett now saying that he forged the diary jointly with Anne. Oh, uh, this is where we are this time around. Well, uh, this is a general belief. Well, we've People had, are happy well, to accept that. Okay, well, I mean, they're happy to accept it. Why? Maybe they'll tell us. Okay. First of all, they're happy to accept it. There is absolutely not a fragment of evidence. There's not a fragment of evidence that shows that either Mike Barrett's handwriting or Annie Graham's handwriting is anything like the diary. But people are prepared to accept that. Even though it was James Maybricks. Maybricks is nothing like his will. Or the diary. Now, now, I agree. No, no. Maybricks' handwriting that we've got, that the will versus the diary doesn't match. Agreed. I'm not from that. On the face of it, it doesn't match. If it had done, 
the gentleman in this room that said, if it had been absolutely identical, I would have had a much bigger problem with the diary. So would I. It's the, the, there's a curious um, PS that I'll add to, to, to this uh, question of, of, of provenance. We've got the editor of Ripperana currently racing towards the conclusion that the people who uh, created the Maybrick Diary were also responsible for the, sending the two hoax letters and the tape to the uh, West Yorkshire police during the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. That's what is the conclusion that he seems to be going towards. So, I mean, are they serial hoaxes? Well, I think that one has to, to listen to this absolute <laughs> bullshit. And but why is it there? I, as you remember, we had, I believe it was the same individual. And if it wasn't, then I apologize. But I believe it was the same individual that claimed that Anne Graham was responsible for the Jack the Ripper pub having to change its name to the Ten Bells because on the leaflet was the name Anne. And what I'm asking people in this room is where is actually the most logical discussion coming from? Have we actually heard anything from any of the detractors from the diary? Now, I actually admire what you said that Don Rumbelow has told you because Don has been able to stand back, have another look, and now he is not sure. He's looking again. Now, that takes a great deal of courage because Don was quite adamant that this was a fake. I will also tell you, and I have no, I, I don't have any qualms in telling you, the first time Don saw this was in St. Lawrence, it was genuine. And he moved away from that because, in my opinion, the shift, people seem to be saying this is a fake. So, and Don tended to move with what the majority was saying. Now, that may have been his reasoning, it may not have been. But the fact is, he's now stood back again and he's having another look. And he's not prepared to say it's definitely a modern forgery. We have to accept that if this is a modern forgery, then Anne Graham or Mike Barrett or both are cleverer than Martin Fido, Melvin Harris, Philip Sugden, and the rest of them. Because they can't prove and cannot show how and when they did it. And they cannot turn up one piece of information about Jack the Ripper that is in that diary that shows it to be a fake. And yet we keep turning up extraordinary coincidences. We talked about the handwriting. When do you want me to handle that? The handwriting, yeah. Can I just come in there? Yes. Handle. Well, you can. Thank you very much. Um, can I just say, do you want to help you? Can you come around here, Donald? Nobody wants to see you. I understand. <laughs> no, I, 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 I have to put up all the messages on the answer phone. <laughs> um, what I'm saying about the, the diary, as to say, I, I still think it was a fake. What has happened recently? First time actually been able to handle the diary. Only the second time, as I say, the first time actually handled the diary. And that was at Cam's a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Now, what struck me on handling the diary was the thing about the paper. For some six years of my life, I worked at Cambridge University Press. Now, looking at the one of the things you get uh, with paper is a lot of discoloration and aging. In the sort of 1980s, a lot of the 
cheap, cheap books were put out. And within a very short time, you've got a tremendous amount of discoloration, not only on the edges of the book, but right the way through the text. Now, what struck me on the infills, all the cut-out sections, the paper inside the binding of the book, you had all this discoloration. There was none on the diary, written section of the diary. And that to me suggested that you've got a different type of paper, and you're looking at some explanation as for the different type of paper. It's different, what visual examination shows, is a totally, the diary is a totally different paper from the rest of the book. Now what hasn't been done on that book, on the diary so far, is nobody's actually sort of seemed to have taken the paper and analysed it and seen what paper we've actually got. Have we, have we got a book with deleted sections which is a Victorian book? Have we got a modern section of signatures which has actually been added into the diary? Now hang on just a minute, let me finish you. You've had, you've had your run. My name's around here. Uh, what is it agreed? Uh, Shirley has agreed, Robert, Robert Smith has agreed. We're going to have, there's a professional binder that we know who's willing to look at, who specializes in the restoration of the of, uh, 18th, 19th century books. He's willing to sort of have a look, the offer's been accepted, to have a look at the diary the to see whether there's been any tampering, whether there has been any binding, um, give his professional opinion on that. Then what is also, I've also suggested, and you've got to see how far that goes, is that you actually have a paper analysis. It's not been done, that should have been done a long time ago. What date is the paper? It's, it's, it's... Forget ink, everything else, what date is the paper? It's a good... Well, that has been, that's been done visually. Oh, it's been done visually. It's not well, the same as... Take actually, it's not actually the same as having a visual. Can I ask a question, Believe me, if I work for six years in print, a visual examination is not the same I, as... I, I accept that, Don. Can I ask a question? Let me just assume for a moment that, 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 that this scientific examination of the paper is done as as Robert is prepared to allow to happen, Shirley is prepared to allow to happen, no one's preventing it from happen, happening, any more than anybody that has been involved with this has attempted at any time not to allow a test to be carried out. Now, let me ask you in advance, there's a lot of women, people in this room, we get the results of this test and Whoever is chosen or, or, or whoever does the test concludes this is paper manufactured in or around the late 19th century. What will that mean to you? Let's have a look and see what it actually No, I'm asking no, no, a question. I'm just, I'm just, I just want, I want to take it a step at a time. Let's have a proper look at it. I think what Don is, is, is saying, this is, this and rightly so, is what you're actually, what, what you're actually... I'll just go going one thing off it. I'm very curious to find out who the river was. If you get a solution to this, I'll be 100% delighted. Three cheers to the person who actually does it. But we're not going to get it unless, this has always been my contention, unless we have a proper analysis, a proper handling of the book. And there are things which have not been done on the diary, which are long overdue, and which should be done. And that's my point. There's the voice from the, uh, from the audience, and it's a good, solid, reasonable point. I, I, I want to come on to this question of handwriting, because there is a question from Adrian Morris. Is Adrian here? Yeah. Um, Adrian has um, written in a question which I'll read uh, to you. 
uh, which concerns the handwriting, he says that Anna Koren, using case studies of people afflicted by the multiple personality phenomenon, claims that this can result in many and varied styles of handwriting. Um, it's claimed in your book uh, as a way of accounting for the differences in the handwriting style of Maybrick's known hand uh, and that of the journal. Uh, that this was the case concerning Maybrick and that he too must have had uh, a split multiple uh, personality. He then goes on to ask that if indeed this was the case then why is the same style of handwriting used in the Maybrick journal throughout, why is it the same uh, when it was written over a period of a year? What he expects to see is fluctuations um, reflecting mood and uh, mood swings. Before I I, I ask you to answer, uh, to respond to that. Can I just ask Adrian so that people can perhaps better understand what may be behind the question? Um, do uh, do you believe that the diary is old, but that James Maybrick did not write it, or do you believe you, that you're shaking your head saying no? Or, so you believe that it is modern, yeah. in which case. James Maybrick definitely didn't write it. So what is the point of the question, which is well, probably what Paul may ask? <laughs> in the uh, book, Corinne uh, uh, says that there are different styles of people with multiple uh, personalities. I, yeah, I, have different I, I understand that. So in fact, your question is more a challenge to Anna Corinne's well, authority and expertise than it is to Paul. It's not just that. It's just a question of the diary. Mm. Hmm. Well, well, as you as you put up earlier, I find it astonishing all the debates about the scientific evidence and 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 um, the handwriting. If, if it's a modern folk, let's just um, home in on Anne, um, find everything we can about her, all her handwriting examples, and prove she wrote it. Or Mike Barrett, or that. It's here. Why are we focusing on historical arguments or scientific evidence? When we kept, we have not been able to scientifically prove that this is a fake. So Anne and Mike and, and Albert Johnson are extraordinary people. These people that live in two up, two downs in Liverpool, off the back of Liverpool Football Club, sat down one day. Let's think about it. Well, ha hang on, because no, 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 because I don't, I don't want you to be accused right. of, of walking right. around Adrian's question. I won't walk around anything. First of all, Adrian's question is very similar to many questions that I get on this. They're not fair in the first place, and I will prove it to you, here and now. He says the diary is what throughout? Consistent, uh, consistently written in the consistently same handwriting. Consistently written throughout. Okay. This was done in the car on the way here. If you would like to look at page 281 of Shirley Harrison's book, you will see that the word I appears six times in the first seven lines, four of which are constructed completely differently. Page 274 shows another two versions of the same word, again completely different. That means that letter I has been written by somebody six times in the two pages I looked at. Totally different. Look at it yourself judge for yourself. It's not consistent at all. Each time he writes the word, it's different. Whoever wrote it, it's different. 
If you have a look at the D on page 290 and on the same page, when writing the same words, Dear Mr. Abilene, the D and the M are completely written in a totally different way. But this man says it's consistent. It's consistent if you want it to be. But the construction of the letters bear no resemblance to each other. Do you have a response to that? Yeah, I uh, first of all, I'd expect the fluctuations in terms, varieties that you talk about, but somebody who's 40 years. Why? Because if you're 40 years, you're not writing in your own hand. This is someone trying to forge Victorian handwriting. They're trying to add curls and loops and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. We've been told that one of the arguments against it like that, handwriting, but is it doesn't look like Victorian handwriting. Exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Let, let, well, let me let me say that have have the, have the conversation in a, in a corner because I want to try and broaden this out. To I want to actually talk about very quickly, if I can, your dispute with Melvin Harris. Well, let um, me finish. You asked me to ask the question. Let me finish answering the well, question. Well, I, I fear that it may actually get purist, and I think if we I'm talk about to, Melvin Harris, if you, have a, look, if you have, have a look at the letters in the diary. You will find that there are letters that he writes consistently, particularly the end, he always writes it consistently. But there are 20 letters that appear and are constructed totally different depending on his move swing, which is what Hannah Perrin said. If you have a look on page 276, 277 of my book, you'll find two letters that I discovered. The one on the left was written by somebody who claimed to be Jack the Ripper and in the top left hand corner you will see the initials of Donald Swanson to show that they were taking these letters seriously and on the right you will see a letter written by James Maybrick now the argument against those two letters being the same of the same hand which I think any fair person would find it very difficult to dispute is that the D is different. It's it's very it's very um, purest arcane um, um, argument, Paul. But I, as I say, I wanted to broaden it out, and I wanted to touch on this well-publicised dispute with with Melvin Harris, which rages on the internet. But I should say first of all, of course, that uh, Melvin isn't here to put his side of the story, and I'm sure of the. Uh, Cloak and Dagger were to extend an invitation to him so that he can actually have the platform uh, that he would be more than welcome. What's the dispute all about? How did it start? Naris was invited um, by the Cloak and Dagger Club the very time I made, when I first came down here and spoke. But that, the dispute had started before then? Yes it did. And Mr. Harris didn't turn up. Um, Mr. Harris I believe the, the the problem arises uh, not not for me because in fact the barometers that Mr. Harris gave us um, early on in my investigation were extremely useful. He was able to point out um, certain things in the diary which took place at certain times, and that meant that it must have been done before 1988 or 87, otherwise it must be genuine, because these things weren't known about by the, the Ripperologists. 
at that time. In fact, I changed the date because it is 89 and not 88. Um, no matter what anyone says, there is a reference to Kelly's dress by her feet in the diary, something which only came out of um, um, Bond's report. Um, and that reference is in the diary, which makes it after 1989. And by 1991, this has been a publisher. That's a very quick time to do all this research and do all this work and learn how to be to fall ink experts and learn how to fall metallurgists and learn the Victorian language. So much so that the diary has a word in it that everyone said, well that proves it's a fake and ended up showing that the Oxford English Dictionary was wrong because a piece of paper turned up to show that the Oxford English Dictionary was wrong. So they don't make one mistake on, on um, uh, the, the Victorian language. They know how to get over the ink experts. Everyone said, oh, you've got to have an ESTA test. So an ESTA test was done. And they knew how to get over that, obviously. Um, the amount of tests and, and, and scientific knowledge that Anne Graham and Mike Barrett must have had, let alone the knowledge of the Ripper, let alone the knowledge of Maybrick. And the Maybrick case, now they may have known that's a local case, fine. But if you take two different people that are different people, and you want to make their lives one, you can't do it. You oh. cannot make, please, you cannot make history work for you. Maybrick, where do you start? I'll investigate Maybrick. Fine, they go out and do their research on Maybrick. They've only got to find one date and it doesn't work, it's all over. Paul, let me say, you, I mean, you've demonstrated actually quite uh, uh, powerfully that this this could go on and on, and there are actually many questions that I w would have liked to have asked you, but I don't want to encroach on time that uh, people may have and probably do have questions they want to ask you. I, I mean, you've heard what Paul has to say. Can I ask you, who here generally is unpersuaded by Paul's arguments that the diary is old, and that James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. Where do we start? <laughs> Let's have a gentleman here. Uh, yeah. I'm not really an expert on the diary or Maybrick or anything else. I just read it from, you know, that is from you. Now, have you considered whether this could be a Victorian document and it could be written by somebody who knew the Ripper but wasn't actually the Ripper himself and that could make the Ripper. Yes, it, um, it's something that, yes, I think it's a, it's a sensible question, a fair question, because I think that when you have done the research that I've had, um, um, and, and the debate that I've had with Keith and Paul is could this be an old document? I don't think there is any doubt that this is an old document, and unless the whole of damn Liverpool has conspired to lie for what I don't know. This we do know existed as early as 1940. There was no, there was absolutely no benefit to William Graham, who was more or less on his deathbed, when he told me that he first saw this um, in 1940. He originally said that he, he received it in 1953, I believe, and he first saw it in 1940, 
having returned from uh, in, in, in the army for about 13 years now. Now, had he been lying with what else he told us, all he would have done is prove his daughter was a forger. That's what he would have achieved. He told us that, he, 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 in as many words, and I put the text in the diary, that his father was the illegitimate son of Florence Maple, born in 1879. Now, at the time, nobody in this room, with all these great historians, knew that Florence Maple was in this country in 1879. But he told us. And he has been proved to be right. Now, he would have only, if she wasn't, as everybody believed, had she first come to this country in 1880 on a boat when she met Maybury, like everybody believed, he would have proved his daughter to be a liar. Can we hear from somebody who actually does feel that this diary is modern, written probably in the last 10, 15 years, and who actually is probably quite confident that they themselves could go out and a duplicate job, knock it together in over maybe a weekend if they're bored out of their skull, um, and that we shouldn't actually be having this uh, uh, debate. Is there anyone who is confident enough that they could produce this uh, document and that it is absolute balderdash? Come on! <laughs> so it's not easy. It, it could be done. It's very Oh, how? I don't know, but with the technology around that you're aware of, that I'm aware of, it could be done. But you have to, I, I'm telling you, it's a fair point. With the technology around, that's a fair comment. But we have to look at the characters involved. Now, we talk about technology, we're not talking about one person here. Because we have to remember, we have a watch as well. No, no, we, we, we have to do both because it's, it, you have to accept that the watch and diary are inextricably linked. You couldn't have done one without the other. Do, do, do you think that it is actually a sophisticated forgery then? Because we know who the forgers are by... I don't actually think it is a forgery. Oh, you I'm don't? saying that it could be reproduced this weekend if we wanted it to be done. Mm -hmm. Because of modern technology that's available. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think it's I believe if it could be if it could be done scientifically, which is what you're really saying, you're saying with scientific knowledge and, and, and perhaps you're right. With with scientists scientists could possibly recreate a document that other scientists wouldn't be able to pick up. Possible. I accept that. Any other questions for Paul? But, but, you can't Sorry, create... You haven't, finished, you haven't finished that. <laughs> There's one thing recreating the, the scientific elements in putting the diary together, in putting the ink on the paper, making it look old, uh, overcoming ESDA, putting the implant into the watch, uh, the, 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 the little carbon, making it 100 years old, perhaps that is actually scientifically possible. I don't think it is, but let's say it is. You've still got to get all the information collated to put in the diary that makes sense because if Maybrick had been in New York on September August the 30th well any of the nights of the murders any of the nights of the murders finished kaput over done Martin you've got a question you've been unusually quiet yes I want to say first 
don't need a mic. Uh, no, don't need a mic. <laughs> that I feel that Paul is trying to distract us to two questions that are irrelevant. Who were the forgers or forger and can we reproduce it? It is not necessary to identify the forger to identify a forgery. It is not necessary to be able to reproduce a particular forgery to prove that it is a forgery. In point of fact, the objections which will be seen by most historians as proof that this journal is definitely not the work of James Maybrick is that it is not in his handwriting, it is not in his spelling, and it is not in the style of English that he or anybody else wrote in the late 19th century. On the question of style, two people who have been trained to identify and place unseen passages of prose within 10 years of when they were written are the lady who wrote for the Sunday Times and myself. Both of us, as Shirley will confirm, said from the outset, this doesn't seem right to us. Paul's book comes back on the one word that I picked up for Shirley and said, I don't like this uh, one-off job. This seems to be a modern term. Fine, Shirley found it used in 1867. Uh, to take another example, the extraordinarily ungrammatical phrase, unlike I, which recurs in the diary, is not the sort of thing to be found in Maybrick's letters, because we're not reduced to his will alone. To come then to the handwriting, an area where people are more familiar with particular expertise. Four handwriting experts, to my knowledge, have looked at this. One, the lady who works for Scotland Yard, who did extremely good work for Stuart Evans on the little child letter and found it to be genuine. She concluded that this was false. She also found, as Adrian correctly noted, that there were attempts to add loops and make it look Victorian and corrections and alterations made. Uh, second, Sue Ironmonger, who decided that this was not in the handwriting of the Maybrick will. The subsequently discovered letters by Maybrick are, to most people's eyes, obviously in the same writing as the will, so we don't really need a lot of argument uh, to claim that Maybrick's brothers forged his will to get round that problem. Two other people have looked at it. Reed Hayes, who as far as I can see, says what Melvin Harris wants him to say when Melvin has shouted down the telephone at him, and what Paul wants him to say when Paul has spoken down the telephone to him. His attitude seems to vary. Well, he's like Lord Derby. He's a cushion and takes the imprint of the last person to have sat on him. But Paul comes back repeatedly in his book to Anna Corrin, who initially said it couldn't possibly be a forgery, and this seems to have impressed him very greatly. I won't go into what Anna might have meant by that, because it really isn't clear from the context exactly what she meant, but I would like to quote Anna Corrin in print in her book, The Secret Self. I am often asked to aid in uncovering forgeries. The truth is that my services are not needed here, but rather those of a handwriting specialist 
to conduct a technical analysis. That is Anna Corrin on her own work. What is your question to Paul? How can he continue to say that historians and experts are simply refusing to see that there is no proof that the diary is a forgery? I'll give my answer to that. There's not one handwriting expert in this room, and that includes Martin Fido. I fairly, in my book, put forward the views of Reed Hayes, of Hannah Corrin, and of Sue Iamonger. I did not hide from any of them. Not only that, I put the views of all the people at Rendell, who also examined the diary, which put the weight against the people that believed the handwriting was not the same of the diary as it was um, of real. Don't dispute that. I'm not trying to move anybody onto answering two questions. With all due respect, Martin, the lady that talked to me about the reproduction of this diary in scientific language was there. I asked, she, the lady there asked the question. I didn't move anyone towards it. But isn't it strange how our Jack the Ripper experts are arguing scientific arguments as to why this isn't right? Or handwriting argument. They're not handwriting experts. And they're not scientists. Oh, I must interrupt. No, you won't. You, you, you have cited me, as quoted through Paul Bain, as saying this could not be shaken historically. I don't know what Paul said to you, but I don't think he would like to say that that was my belief in December 19, whatever year it was. Well, the fact I is... felt that it was shaky historically. Explanations might be found to get round the shakiness, which didn't mean I would have to endorse them. No, Very different from the sort of report which you say you had, in my opinions. I have never thought this diary stood up historically. Can I say it's, it's now 20 past nine? No, let me, I, let I, me I, ask that. Well, well ask me, me, he, he, he sitting in the middle of me. First of all, I had assumed, and I apologise to Martin in advance, that when Paul Begg was speaking for the people I had employed to work with me on the book, he was speaking as one voice for all three. I was not aware that he was not doing so. But I was but not employed by you, Paul. I was employed by Shirley. I was working with the people on the A to Z. I assumed you were one of them. Well, I think uh, that, I mean, okay, there's a question let, of being employed. I said I apologise if I interpreted Paul Beck's comment. We cannot shake it as including you. I apologise. A lot of people here. I apologise. Second, I remain. Martin Fido's not a handwriting expert. The arguments for handwriting are in the diary. I don't know how many of you were educated in the 1950s I was. I was taught to write italics when I was putting together a formal letter. I was taught to write italics. It bore no resemblance to my handwriting whatsoever, but we were taught to write italics. We didn't have word processors then. So you needed a formal hand. By the 1950s, it moved to italics. My ex-father-in-law writes, he's 89, 91, something like that, God bless him. He writes the most beautiful copper plate handwriting. He did all the handwriting at my wedding. He wrote the invitations. And every since I had a Christmas card or a birthday card, it is in the most beautiful copper plate handwriting. You should see his betting slips. <laughs> There's absolutely no resemblance whatsoever. James Maybrick had 
a copper plate hand which was used for formal writing which is why the letters are similar but they're not the same and you will find differences in the 13 letters that we found no one else found everyone else said there was nothing else in existence i found them and i wasn't ashamed to reproduce them in my book or reproduce one in my book now you, you, i want to hear martin Fido say that those two letters bear no similarity whatsoever Right, okay, I sit here uncomfortably poised between these, uh, uh, these two, and I hear what Martin uh, uh, says, and I respect what Martin uh, says, but it, again, it just actually uh, demonstrates that how this in entire investigation seems to have got off uh, on the wrong foot right from the beginning. One wishes one could turn back the clock five and a half years and actually have people sitting down together talking rationally, exchanging uh, views. Uh, unless anyone has got any further questions, I want to try and draw it to a close. Yes, sir. Yeah, two points. Um, you said you were trained to do in charge when you were in school. Mm -hmm. um, don't you think the person, the forger or forgers, could have had the same ability to do that, the forgers are anyway, the same ability that you had? I believe that anyone, if this had been forged, the amount of experts that have looked at it, both historically, scientifically, and have, would have been able to actually prove it, and they haven't. And I know the characters involved, and no, I don't believe they are capable of putting it together. And I look at it, and I, I have to come back to this, I tried to tell it before, a chicken and egg. Let us imagine Albert Johnson, he's got the watch, and Anne Graham, and Mike Barrett, and Tony Devereaux and William Graham, and they're all, at one point, they must have been sitting in a room together saying, let's forge a diary, and let's say that James Maybrick is Jack the Ripper. There has to be a start point for the forgery. So one day they're sitting down in, in somebody's home, they've decided they are going to forge a diary. So what do they do? They have to go out and they have to research Maybrick, somebody. Somebody has to research the Ripper. Somebody has to understand the technology of ink on paper. They have to understand how ions migrate. They have to understand Victorian language. They have to be able to understand metallurgy, of which there's only two machines in the whole country that could have detected that particle. And we went to both of them. But they have to understand metallurgy. And then they go off and do their little bits. And then they have to hope that in putting all this effort in, that no one turns up a date that's wrong, that doesn't work, that maybe it couldn't be the Ripper, that, 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 that maybe it couldn't have been in London. So that's the risk they were taking, but it didn't happen. Nothing fell apart, but it could have done. So they're going to do all this. But the weird thing is, in order to go out and do this, they have to go to the libraries, they have to go to and learn about all these things. They have to go to the PRO, they have to learn about Maybrick. There's certain documents that would have had to come out of the Maybrick files. But nobody went to the Maybrick files prior to us. No, and Harrison. Sorry. Did you ask or ever get an explanation why the first lot of pages was missing? You quoted different numbers. Did you read my book? Pardon? Did you read my book? Well, the Maybrick diary. No, no my book. Diary. That book. No, well, read it. So well, now, I'll answer there, <laughs> yes, I'll answer you. It probably cost me sixteen ninety nine, but I'll answer it. Um, I'll tell you afterwards. Yes, sir. Okay. 
Keith, is that isn't it some, something someone else? No, there's a gentleman down here. Once. Oh, sorry, sir. Go. Consider that maybe James Maybrick did write a diary which came down to Angrax when he was not Jack the Ripper, and that diary was used as the basis for all the Maybrick references, together with some of the modern Ripper books, and they were put together. I, I, I most certainly have considered that. I, mo I most certainly, <laughs> I most certainly have considered that, and I know that that, that, that um, he, he may want to own up, he may not. But there's one expert in this room whose initial reaction was it was written by Maybrick, he wasn't the Ripper. There was somebody who did believe that he is an expert, and 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 I acknowledge that. So that possibility was there. But I do not believe that Maybrick would have had the access to the information about the Ripper if he wasn't the Ripper. No, it's I'm saying he didn't write anything about the Ripper. He just wrote about himself, about his wife, about how long the Grand National took, all that sort of stuff. But somebody else took that uh, Maybrick diary together with the Jack Ripper diary, said, I'm Maybrick, Jack Ripper. So you can't make change. Okay, I hear what you say. And Graham, okay, so, so this makes sense. So you're saying that Billy Graham ha was the legitimate son of Lawrence, yeah. did have a diary written by James Maybrick, yeah. which gave good personal information about Maybrick, um, and Anne Graham used that diary of Maybrick and, and, and constructed it in a way uh, that, that it would include the information about the Ripper. I think I, I think that's a valid observation. I think it's a fair observation. Um, I don't believe, I think that if anybody would have constructed this after 1989, including all Ripper experts who would have made a mistake, she didn't. I think I have to um, uh, play my hand here and say, uh, give my own position on this. Uh, I do believe Anne Graham's story. I do believe the document is old. Um, I do not believe that James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. I'm prepared to accept that he could be Jack uh, the Ripper. I just simply do not know. What I will say is that I believe the document is old um, and that it existed possibly in the 1920s and the 1930s. That bothers me a lot. I've got and no, answer. I've got, I've got no answers. And that is why I said... I've got, I've got to stop here, Paul, okay, because Andy Ailey is doing that's, this. That's why <laughs> it frightens the historians, because if it did exist in the 1920s or 1930s, they cannot give you an answer as to where that information came from. I have one final question, which relates to Andy uh, Parler, actually, skulking there in the oh, shadows. Cool. <laughs> um, the, the, the question, um, Paul, um, is that you're a, a passionate... No, 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 we'll talk about that. I don't know, no, no, I'm going to bring it up. Yeah, I'll ask, just, you, just, ask, you, ask you a question then. Surely we're all getting away from the point here. Whether the diary is genuine or not, it's a fact whether James Maybrick was checking Is that... Is that Absolutely right. right. So, knowing the amount of work that Paul's done, and having gone through the Millennium Institute, we know, and we respect your research, and I'll fight to defend that research. The only thing that it does on a really mundane level if we think James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper, he's written these diaries, we say, he's riddled with guilt, he's riddled with remorse. However, it was a, with Florence Maybrick's affair and his affairs. Now, it's noted that on as he was dying, he shouted to people to let him go and let him die in peace. 
I believe that the the quote. Well, let me, just, oh, sorry. Yeah. Right now, why didn't he on his deathbed confess he was Jack the Ripper? Okay, for, because for, most people before they're hung plead their innocence, and when the ropes put round their neck, they confess. Okay, I, I so that is just the point. Well, I'll answer it. Firstly, the quote "Let me die in peace" was when his brothers were coming to get him. Uh, you might take note to sign a will on the eve of his death. Now he died on May the 8th, I believe, <coughs> and they were trying to get him to sign a will on May the 7th. But according to all the experts, the will on April the 25th is the one he, he signed, and that's the one that's genuine. But it is fact, it's a matter of court <coughs> record, that it was on May the 7th. He was heard saying, let me die in peace, when his brothers were trying to get him to sign a will. Okay, that's number one. Number two, why did he confess he did? Um, he confessed to Florence Maybrick, he confessed to Michael Maybrick, and he confessed to um, George Davidson. Why didn't Florence, which was a very question, first brought up by Don, I believe, repeated by Andy Hayden, why didn't Florence say, um, my husband was Jack the Ripper and I killed him? I don't think that that would have been grounds for, for, to get him off anyway. It actually would have given the prosecution the, um, the very reason why she did murder him, and that was what they couldn't find. It didn't seem to be any logical reason. She was left nothing in the will. She'd already broken up with Alfred Brearley. There seemed to be no motive at all for Florence to kill Jane, and that was the prosecution's problem. Had she said, my husband was Jack the Ripper, and there was evidence of it. Okay, she may have been a, a, a hero in the eyes of the world, but the fact is, now they've got the reason as to why she killed him in the first place. I think that the way that the Maybrick and Ripper case fit together, no forger can expect that sort of luck. Um, that's your that's your answer, Andy. I, I'm going I, I, to race this question in because it's something which I can open out and you can all go away and think about, and that is your. I, you're a passionate football fan and, a, and an avid Arsenal supporter, and there you have something in common with Andy, uh, uh, Andy Parler. Um, but the question I've always wanted to ask you is that if you were um, a manager put and had to field a Jack the Ripper 11 from all of the suspects, who would you actually include and who would you leave out? I'm assuming here, of course, that Maybrick would be a striker. <laughs> and that Cohen would be on the reserve bench. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just wonder, maybe you can have a quiz on that. For well, yes, who would be defence? Druitt for the defence? I, 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 I was honest enough, so you know, in my book, I believe Druitt was a, the, the, I did used to believe that Druitt was a ripper of the known suspects. The reason was that I always believed that the ripper was a gentleman. Um, and I believe that because of the murder of Mary Kelly. Um, I did not believe that Mary Kelly would have entertained anybody in her room and needed to entertain anybody in her room if they hadn't been gentlemen. That was my logic, uh, whether it be faulty or not. I believe that the man who she was singing to did murder her. Um, well, Paul, without being patronising, it's, it's, it's been entertaining, I, I, I hope, and I want to thank you for coming here and 
responding to the questions openly, frankly, and honestly. But you said you gave me a chance and you didn't. I just want to be free. Just little things that always impress me about the diary. Leave on the very first page, you've got the phrase that says, strolled by the tribe. And in a Maybrick photo album, which I happen to have possession of at the moment, we found a photograph of Egbert, Egbert Park Drive, which is just at the top of Riversdale Road. And you'll see it would have been a lovely place to stroll by. Um, you can have a look at that whenever you want. But, so it goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, can you show your appreciation for it? And that was Paul Feldman at the February 1998 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you'll find over 160 roundtable discussions author interviews conference presentations whitechapel society meetings and archive tapes all about jack the ripper east end history and victorian true crime if you have any questions or comments about any of our releases feel free to contact us on the casebook message boards or find us on twitter and facebook by searching for Rippercast.